When Jim Cimbala became the lead pastor at uh, Brooklyn Metropolitan Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York, it was a small, actually a very tiny church. It had had its glory days. It had an auditorium that could seat 700, and I think there were only about 25 people that first Sunday that he was there. He was a new young minister. He had hopes and dreams and aspirations, and yet in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, he describes how his experience at Brooklyn, Metropol Brooklyn Metropolitan Tabernacle was incredibly discouraging in those first years, that he just found that there were conflicts and difficulties and that the community around them, they weren't reaching, and there was more violence around them and difficulties and pain and sorrow. At many points, Jim wanted to give up. He wanted to just quit altogether. Here he was, newly married, wondered how he would provide for his wife and now a family that was on its way, and here was a struggling church. And in a moment of desperation, Jim Simbala, he cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord in desperation, he describes it, knowing that all he had was God. That's, that's it. And he sensed from that moment on that what the Lord was calling the church there in Brooklyn, New York to do was to focus on a ministry of prayer, that prayer should be the central meeting place and meeting time of the church, not Sunday mornings, not, not the worship gathering where the word was proclaimed, but rather the times of prayer should be absolutely central. And through that, as the church began to focus on the ministry of prayer, they experienced something quite profound. They experienced tremendous change. They experienced the presence and the power of God. That didn't remove conflict from the church. It didn't make all the problems just erase and go away. But what it did was it focused the church on where its true power came from. It didn't come from their strategies or from their action plans or from anything else, but it came from God and from God Himself. And this has been really the focus of the church throughout the ages, that when churches realize that they're not existing to be attractional or to just merely reach out to a community, but they exist as outposts of the coming kingdom of God to know God and His presence and His power. When the priorities get straightened out, actually something fundamentally different begins to happen. That All it takes is just a slight degree off for a church to go way off. And what we find in the book of Acts, in Acts 4, is the model of a church that knew that its that its strength and its power did not come from itself, but it came from God. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to ask a couple questions of this passage, and I want us to consider what it means to, to know the power of prayer. As we begin this year, 2024, as a church, let's resolve to make ourselves more committed to prayer. I want to do that. I want you to join me in doing that. So how do we know the power of of prayer. Let's take a look at three things from Acts chapter 4. And the first is this, who do we pray to? Now, that seems like an obvious question. You're going, you're going to spend some time actually describing who we pray to? And yet, I want you to notice in this passage 
that the majority of this prayer is focused upon who the church was praying to. It's obvious. You want to say, oh, we pray to God. Yes, we pray to God, but what does this look like, and why do we focus ourselves on God? In the context of Acts chapter 4, let's, let's just zoom back out. Let's consider the, the account of what's happened. Beginning in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. And as they go to the temple to pray, there is a man, 40 years old, who's been lame since his birth. And he's sitting at the beautiful gate, and he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. He has not been able to go up, he's not been able to pray. And as a result of this, Peter and John begin to do this ministry of mercy, and they, uh, they bring healing to this man in the name of Jesus. This causes all sorts of consternation for the Jewish leadership. At the time, the church is just strictly Jews. And the Jewish leadership hears these two men, Peter and John, praying and talking and speaking about Jesus' death and resurrection. And it causes them to be concerned because this movement of Jesus' followers is actually disrupting the entire temple worship. It's disrupting the entire temple system. And as a result of that, they have Peter and John arrested on two grounds. One, on the ground that this man has been healed, and on the second ground, because they're speaking about Jesus and this is bothering them. Having them arrested and taken away, they order them in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, not to speak any more about the name of Jesus, to which Peter and John say, we can't do that because salvation is found in no one else. And as a result of this, as they meet back with the church, what the church does now in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, is they pray. They pray. And as they pray, they are turning to God, and the majority of this prayer, as they lift their voices, it says in verse 24, they lift their voices together. And so what we have here is not just individual people praying on their own, but a collective church gathering together to pray for the presence and power of God. And they lift their voices together, and they say this, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so as the church begins to pray, they pray three things that they know about God. First, they pray in the knowledge of the God who has created all things. Do you see that? He is the sovereign Lord, they say, sovereign master, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, verse 24. There is something quite powerful when we focus upon a God who merely creates by opening his mouth and speaking. All things exist, we know, by him. They came from his mouth. He opened his mouth and boom, all that there is, is. This is the kind of power that God has. And they say that they pray to the God who has created heaven and earth 
and, and the seas, and then he's filled them all. And in light of that, the God who makes the roar of a lion and the crash of thunder, the God who makes the cascading waterfall flow and the heat of the sun melt, is also the God who is stronger and more powerful, yet also far more gracious than anyone could ever imagine. And in the face of opposition, don't you need to be reminded of a God who can simply open his mouth and all things are? This is what the church was doing. Their, their confession of who God is, it begins with the God who creates. But it also is a confession of the God who reveals. They go on and speak about, in verse 25 and 26, about who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2. Here is the God who has revealed his purposes and his plans to redeem. And he has spoken. Do you notice how it says he has spoken by our father David, by the Holy Spirit? That, that here is the inspiration and authority that the God who created all things has also given us his revelation of who he is. It's not sufficient just for God to create. You cannot know God's gracious saving power just by looking at the world. You need a message from him. And the message that he has given is a message of redemption. And he speaks of it. And as the church prays, what they pray is the God who has revealed himself by his word through holy men who were led by the Holy Spirit. And so as they pray this prayer, they're reminded that while the nations rage, literally the Gentiles rage, God is the one as they quote Psalm 2, that kings and political leaders and rulers can gather together against the Lord and against His King that He has established. That, that the world can rise up against God, but yet what is the promise? The promise of Psalm 2 is that, the end of Psalm 2 is this, nations can rage, Nations can try to thwart and stamp out the people of God and even God's anointed. But God is so powerful that He is not just the God who creates and the God who reveals, but He is also the God who rules and redeems, which is what we see in verses 27 and 28. Now, what's interesting is that Herod and Pontius Pilate, here we have one who's a half-Jew and one who's a full-Jew who are acting like Gentiles, who are acting like unbelievers. They can act in ways that are against your holy servant Jesus, they say. And that they act against Jesus, whom they even put to death on a cross. But God has designed this plan. You see how it says... Not only is it Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That the world can even kill the Lord Jesus Christ, but God is more powerful because He can raise Him from the dead, which is exactly what Peter and John were testifying to. 
As they saw this man who had been lame and he is healed and he is able to walk, they began to speak in Acts 3 about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has been raised from the dead. And he's been raised from the dead because he overcomes the power of sin and death and hell. And by overcoming the power of sin and death and hell, he is the God that the church entrusts. Because evil cannot thwart God's plan. In fact, evil only bows its knee to serve King Jesus. That you can kill the Lord of glory and the Lord of heaven and earth will raise His Son again. That the purposes and plans of God cannot be stopped. And so the church spends the majority of their time focusing on who is God. But the question then is, what do we focus upon? Do you see how this prayer, the majority of this prayer, is not fixated upon what they're asking for, but upon who God is? Long before we get to our requests, we should spend our time reminding ourselves and and coming before God and just it's not reminding God of who He is, but it's, it's appealing to God on the nature of who He is and who His character is and who his, what His promises are so that we root ourselves not in what we want, but in who He is. And when we are rooted in who God is, there is then a confidence to come before God with boldness. Hebrews will talk about coming before the throne of grace with boldness in Hebrews 10. And we need that confidence because we know who we're praying to. So this is the first thing. What, who do we pray to? We pray to our sovereign Lord who is the master who creates, who reveals and who rules and who has sent his son to show that death and sin and hell have been overcome. But then what do we pray for? Here we come to the second part of this prayer. Not only do they pray about God in three ways, that He is the Creator, Revealer, and Ruler, and Redeemer, but notice here how they pray. What do they ask for? Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When you face threats, challenges, hardships, difficulties, what do you ask for? I think the majority of people, there's a, a comparison that some commentators have made between this prayer, which is very similar to the prayer of King Hezekiah in Isaiah 37. In Isaiah 37, let me just set a little bit of a context. King Hezekiah, the king of, of Judah, he's in Jerusalem. And the great superpower army, the Assyrians, have surrounded the city of Jerusalem. In the ancient world, what people would do is, you would have a walled city, and that's keeping your enemies out. And what, what would happen is, as an enemy would come around a city, they would prevent anything from going in and out. And for the Assyrians, I think it was almost a year and a half or two years that they had surrounded Jerusalem. They were going to starve the people out of the city. They were going to kill them 
by just surrounding them. And then they would build these enormous ramparts, these big earth and dirt walls that would go up the side of the city walls so that eventually they could breach and get over the city wall. With Sennacherib surrounding with his army, the city of Jerusalem, Hezekiah prays to the Lord. And what he prays for in Isaiah 37 is that the Lord would protect the holy city of Jerusalem. He, he prays for protection. But contrast that with what the disciples here pray for. The disciples here, they don't pray for protection. That's what's quite shocking about this, actually. They're not asking God to remove the persecution. They're not praying for persecution either. So let's just make that clear. We shouldn't be praying for persecution, but notice that they're not asking as well for that persecution to be removed. Notice also that while they quote Psalm 2, what do they not pray about from Psalm 2? Well, Psalm 2, if I'll, I'll flip there for the sake of the benefit of our time here this morning. In Psalm 2... It's a psalm that is praying about how while the nations are raging and plotting against God's plans, they want to overthrow God, they hate God, they despise God, they don't want to live by God's law and by God's ways. They want to burst apart their bonds and cast away their cords. They don't pray, as Psalm 2 prays, for God to laugh at them. They don't pray for God's wrath upon their enemies, verse 5. They don't pray, verse 9, that God would break them with a rod of iron. And they do not pray, as verse 12 says, that their enemies would perish. All things that are prayed throughout the Bible. But what did the early church pray for? First, they said, consider their threats. Literally, look upon their threats. Now, it's not as though God isn't able to see, right? We know that God knows all things. He, he can see all things. He's an all-knowing God. So why are they praying, look, consider? I think most simply the reason is that when you're asking someone to look, you're asking them to take note and consider the injustice that is going on. And what they are doing as a church is what they are saying is, God, consider the injustice. Peter and John have just been thrown into prison, and it's only been because they talked about the name of Jesus and they healed a man. They didn't do anything illegal. They didn't do anything wrong. But Lord, look upon the injustice that is happening. And would you basically, what they're saying is, would you consider their threats so that we could remain faithful? Because if their fellow Jews are acting like Gentiles, unbelievers, then Lord, help us to act as faithful believers. The second thing that they pray for is, consider their threats and enable your servants, they say, in verse 29, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Here what they're asking is, that while the, the political religious leadership has said, we don't want you to talk about Jesus, chapter 4, verse 18, God, help us to keep talking about Jesus. If the government says, stop talking about Jesus, 
why is it that you continue to speak about Jesus? Because while there are rulers that we need to submit to, there is a ruler who rules over the rulers. There is a lawgiver who gives a law. There is one who is supreme, and that supreme one is God himself. And so we submit ourselves to God. And so they prayed that they would submit themselves to God. Do you see how they describe themselves? That grant your servants. If God is the master, literally sovereign Lord means sovereign master. If God is the master, then we are your servants. And we're not, we're not designed to just speak our own message. We are people who have been given a message under the authority of King Jesus. And that message is what is authoritative because it comes from the king. And because it comes from the king, you don't add to what the king says or take away from what the king says. You speak what the king says. And so they ask, would you grant your servants to speak with boldness? That those with power who tell us not to speak, help us to speak anyways. And in our society, we need a growing conviction that when the government asks us to do things that are clearly contrary to the Word of God, that we have a higher authority. As much as is possible, we should be the best citizens of this country. We should be displaying that we are willing to work with our governments as much as is possible until they ask us to compromise on the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, they pray, consider their threats. So help us to stay faithful in the midst of injustice. Help us to speak with boldness. Grant us that boldness. And do you see the third thing that they ask for? And they ask that you would stretch out your hand to heal in signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What they're asking for, essentially, is for God to bring a ministry of mercy. That they're not asking for wrath upon their enemies. They're asking that God would display His mercy in the world. That it is not... Proverbs will say it this way. A harsh word stirs up anger, but a gentle answer turns away wrath. If a harsh word, that's Proverbs 15.1, if a harsh word can turn away or to stir up anger, but a gentle answer can turn away wrath, then how much more would acts of mercy be a question that confounds the world? That when evil is done, that you do good? That when harm is done, that when wrong is done, we do not repay evil for evil, but we repay evil with good. What would that look like in a world where everything is tit for tat, getting even, settling the score, wanting justice? What if it wasn't that we settled the score, but as God will say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and instead we ask, God, would you do wonders and signs and miracles and would you perform these healings and why is that because what happened when a miracle happened in acts chapter 3 what did the disciples do they testified to the resurrected jesus 
Now, we don't need miracles in order to testify to the resurrected Jesus. What we need is to be a people who ask, God, would you enable us to be a people who do ministries of mercy to those around us? Because if we would be a people, instead of doing evil but would do good, what a powerful display to a world that is full of cancel culture, right? In a world where, where wrong is done to you, what is the natural, sinful human inclination? Isn't it to get even? And yet everything that these disciples pray for, look at their threats, look at the injustice, help us to speak with boldness, and, and then we're asking you to just pour out mercy. Because what this is a prayer for is for the advance of the mission of the gospel, that the good news of Jesus, who forgives sinners, who redeems sinners, who rescues sinners, who loves sinners, that that message would go forward. More than anything else, what they're praying for collectively, together, is we want the mission of Jesus to go forward in the world. It's not first and foremost protect us. It's first and foremost that you would show, do you see how they describe the signs and wonders that they would be performed not by their hands, but by the name of Jesus? They want the name of Jesus to be what's on display. They want Jesus to be shown to be great. They want the gospel to go forward. So who they pray to is the God who is the creator, revealer, the redeemer and ruler of all things. They pray that God would consider the threats, that they would be given boldness, and that God would grant more ministries of mercy. And the last thing is, what does God give? Verse 31 then sums up the answers as to what God gives. Three things. Isn't it awesome? I have three points and each point has three subpoints. It's like a Baptist who's just like hit his stride, I'm telling you. Three things. First, it says that the place that they were, they were praying together was shaken. What is this? What is this shaking? There are, I'll give you two other examples in the Bible as to what happened when a place was shaken. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is coming into the temple to perform his priestly duties, and he comes to the altar, and he presents a sacrifice, and as he prays, the place where he is is shaken, and the God of glory passes by so that the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple and the foundations are shaken. The other place is in Exodus 19. Israel has just come out of Egypt. They've been slaves. They come to the mountain of God, where Mount, where, uh, Mount Sinai, where, where Moses had initially met with God, and God had commissioned him and sent him back to Egypt. And as they come back, God had said, you're going to return to this mountain. You're going to worship me. And now as they return to Mount Sinai and they worship him, Moses begins to ascend. And we're told in Exodus 19.18 that the mountain trembled and shook as the Lord came down and descended with fire in the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments. In other words, what happens when God shows up 
is he shakes the heavens as he shakes the earth. And this is a display of his presence. Now, this this obviously was a great manifestation of his presence. But I love how the golden mouth preacher, this is his nickname, the golden mouth preacher John Chrysostom would say this in the fourth century when he would look at this passage. He would say, the whole place was shaken and, let, and that left them all the more unshaken. What happens when God shakes the heavens and the earth with his presence is that he creates an unshakable people. Now isn't that an awesome thing? That what does his presence do? His presence empowers his people so that not only does he give his presence, but he gives his spirit. We're told the second thing that he gave was he filled them with the spirit. Here, the people who wanted to speak with boldness now receive all of, of, of God so that they might have their mouths filled so that they might speak, which leads to the third thing, that they would speak with boldness and they continued to speak with boldness. So the very things that they prayed for, that God would consider their threats so that they would remain faithful, that they would, they would speak with boldness and that God would do signs so that He would bring ministries of mercy. What does God do? He sends His presence, fills His people with His power, and enables them to speak while He shakes the earth. And this is what God loves to do. So then the question is, um, why are our church prayer times so small? Maybe just sit on that for a moment. This service is not, it's it's ultimately important. I, I do believe that. But the engine of the church, as Christians have said throughout the ages, are corporate times of prayer. We are a powerless church when we are a prayerless church. I am not talking about your quiet time with Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. The church gathers together corporately to pray. And they do it with a unified voice we see in verse 24 together. And they remember their God collectively. There is something fundamentally different that happens when we gather together to pray. There is a presence and power of God that is on display. So, that leads me to ask this question, which is not from the text. How can we pray corporately? I am not trying to guilt you into prayer. I want you to be motivated because of the presence and power of God. I need the presence and power of God more. In the face of a world that is increasingly opposed 
to the good news of Jesus in a world where it is more reasonable in the minds of people in, in, uh, around us to think that there is no God or God is irrelevant, we need the presence and power of God even all the more so. All the more so. And the presence and power of God, yes, you can be a Christian who prays and reads your Bible on your own, but there is something that is critical, as Jim Simbala saw in Brooklyn, New York, that a church that prays together stays together and goes together in the presence and power of God. Because when the people of God pray the word of God according to the promises of God, they experience the power of God. So what are the ways that we can pray corporately? The first four is what I really want to emphasize. On Sunday mornings at 9.30, I would love for that east meeting room where the red couches are, I would love for that to be filled. I would love for us to believe that there is something that is far more powerful that God can accomplish during this time, because we have sought Him. 9.30, it's just a mere 30 minutes beforehand, before the service. Peter Vanderlei is leading that time, and we would be more than overjoyed if for some reason we had to move out of that room because it was too full. We'll figure out that problem. I love those kinds of problems. The second time is in that same room on Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. I know that's not always the best time for those who are working, but at 9 a.m. we also have a time of corporate prayer. It's a time where we pray for missions and we pray for the ministry of the church. The third way is maybe maybe prayer meetings terrify you. I know that lots of people, they hear prayer meetings and it's just like, oh, this is going to be dreadful and boring and praying together, how are we going to manage this? A great way to start, this Wednesday night at 6.30 in the youth room in that back corner, which I would also love to be overflowing, we are going to have a time of praise and prayer. We're going to be led in worship with our, by our youth and by Jordan, or, um, I think Michael Murray actually, and we're going to gather together. And what I love about our praise and prayer times is that they're short prayers. You're not going to hear someone pray a five-minute long prayer and be praying, Lord, please make them stop because I want to go. Let's confess that some of us have been in prayer meetings where that actually happens, Right? These prayers are short, they are audible, they are clear, and they are concise. And we have done this, I think, for about four years, praise and prayer times. And I'll tell you, they are some of the most encouraging times because if you've never been to a prayer meeting, I'm going to give you a couple of testimonies here. There are a couple of of men who have said to me, I have never prayed in public till I was at a praise and prayer night. And when you said, Lord, I praise you because, and all I had to do was fill in the blank, I actually prayed out loud together with people for the first time. For the first time. And there's something about how God then gives you a boldness to keep praying and to keep asking and to ask for more and to ask for more. So I want to encourage you, 6.30 on Wednesday night, 
Would you join us? Or consider a life group. Sometimes our prayer requests are deeply personal and they are deeply painful and we need the people of God to come around us. That just like when Israel was in battle, Aaron and her lifted up the arms of Moses because as Moses kept his arms raised, the, the victory belonged to the people of God. But anytime his arms fell, the enemy would prevail. So sometimes we have to lift each other's arms up that we carry each other's burdens. And as we carry each other's burdens in prayer, what we find is that God prevails. And we see the victory of God. And we can have that confidence. And one final thing I will say, I'm I'm not suggesting that if you show up on Sunday that it is entirely irrelevant. But one of the things that we aim to do in our services is that we aim to pray. One of the things that is happening increasingly in churches that that have just strictly a mission focus on Sunday mornings and have forgotten that they exist to know God and by knowing God, then what happens is we actually become a people who go to the world with the display of God, is that prayer is almost irrelevant or non-existent in these types of churches or it's used for let's all close our eyes and when we open them, the worship team is magically up on the stage and no one noticed It's a great transition. That's not what prayer is. We don't exist to pray so that we can have smooth transitions. We exist to pray to know God. That's why we start our services with prayer. That's why we pray a pastoral prayer. We pray collectively a a confession because we're reminded that we, we sometimes think that the most authentic prayers are just the ones that are spontaneous. And yet, let's be honest, if you pray spontaneously, don't you find that it's actually a lot of the same old, same old? And sometimes we need the history of the church to help us to pray. And so we want to show you how believers have prayed throughout the ages with a prayer of confession. I pray at the end of my sermon because what I want is I want God to take what I have said and to do abundantly more than what I could ever accomplish because me talking here is not going to accomplish a whole lot unless God does something. And so we pray. And we pray according to His Word. So won't we make 2024 a year where we as a church are a praying church where we would seek His presence and His power so that we would remain faithful, that we would love Him, that we could tell the world about Jesus and do good in the world and display that prayer is the fuel for mission? Could we be a praying church in 2024? Let's pray. Lord, think of the words of Daniel from Daniel 9. We do not pray because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, Forgive, O Lord, heal, O Lord, act, and do not delay for the sake of your name. 
we confess that we have made prayer all about us and we have forgotten that it is first and foremost about knowing you and loving you and worshiping you and adoring you and seeking you and having you. We could have everything else, but if we did not have you, we would have nothing. So, Lord, would you fuel the fire of prayer among us that we would know you, seek you, and love you. That's why we come to you and we pray. Not in our names, but we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior.